0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin.
1: And I'm Kimberly Robinson.
0: So, Kimberly, we're recording this on Friday, December 10th. We just got the opinions in the Texas SB8 case. We had already been planning on recapping the Dobbs argument and talking about the latest religion argument. So we'll do that, too. But first, you want to talk about this latest Texas case we got this
1: morning on a rare Friday Opinion Day? Sure, so to remind listeners, abortion providers in Texas had sued to challenge the law as well as the federal government, um, who said that if these abortion providers could not overcome the procedural hurdles that they were facing in their suit, then the federal government at the very least should be allowed to step in. So the Supreme Court gave the abortion providers a narrow path forward to challenge the law. Uh, In doing so, they dismissed the federal case, saying basically it wasn't necessary for them to decide the issues that were presented there. Uh, But importantly, the court did not strike down the law. Instead, it wants the district court to consider the next steps here.
0: So the takeaway in the meantime is the law is still in place, and... I guess it's not clear even from the opinion that carved out this narrow path whether that's even necessarily going to help the challengers, is it? Is that something we have to wait and see?
1: I do think that's something that we'll have to wait and see. Now, the Supreme Court asked the district court to hear this case uh, swiftly, which, you know, it seems like everything that's happened so far that the district court will do that. But because the ruling was so narrow, uh, it's not clear, as you mentioned, what that effect will have. And so... Uh, In particular, the abortion providers had sued a number of state officials. They tried to sue the attorney general. They tried to to sue court clerks, and they tried to sue kind of licensing officials. And it's only that last group of people that the Supreme Court uh, said, eight to one, that they could go ahead and sue. And so when this case goes back down to the district court, it's not clear what that's going to mean. If the district court says, you know, you licensing officials who have some enforcement over, you know, disciplinary actions for doctors who violate Texas law, if the district court says this law is invalid, but only those uh, state officials cannot enforce that law. So, Uh, Still a lot of question marks, and I think also a big question mark about what this means for other states who want to pass laws like this, not just affecting abortion, but, you know, when we talked about this case before, there was a brief from the Firearms Policy Coalition who sided with the abortion providers saying, look, if you guys let this go forward, um, you know, Second Amendment rights are going to be next. So um, we'll have to see there are some of these laws already being considered by legislatures, And I suspect that blue blue states will kind of jump on the train now and see what they can get away with.
0: Kimberly, do you think that a similar law with a provision infringing on what the court has held to be Second Amendment rights would similarly be successful like this abortion law has been?
1: Yeah, Jordan, that's pretty cynical. Uh, I don't know. Um, You know, of course there are differences when you're talking about abortion rights and Second Amendment rights. Um, You know, one of the things that Justice Sotomayor said, and uh, what is really a dissenting opinion, uh, she said, "What what's going to happen when states try to you know, prohibit certain forms of religion? Uh, that's something like Second Amendment that I can't see the justices, at least on this current court, letting states get away with. But based on the court's reasoning in this case, I'm not sure why not.
0: Right. And we alluded to the breakdown here a little bit. It's the same breakdown that we had when the law went into effect in September, right?
1: That's right. So we have eight to one, pretty broad agreement on these licensing officials that they can be sued. Justice Thomas is the only holdout. He would say, you know, they're out of luck. They can't sue any of these state officials. You have to go through the state courts and have to work your way through there. There was then a five to four split on whether or not these other state officials could be sued, and importantly, on whether or not the Supreme Court should just go ahead and you know prohibit the law from being enforced right now. Uh, so, you know, again, we see this five-four split uh, with Roberts, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan being in dissent. And um, I was enjoying watching Twitter this morning with everyone calling them the four libs on the court. Um, <laughs> it's quite quite a statement to call Justice Roberts a liberal.
0: Yeah, that just shows where we're at now, relatively, right?
1: It does. And I think one of the other things to note is that we need to be really careful whenever we talk about um, oral arguments and what they signal. So when we talk about this Mississippi case with our guest, um, you know, I would not have expected the court to come out this narrowly. And, and, you know, in particular, questions from Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett seemed to me like they were going to go further, um, but they didn't.
0: Go further in favor Of the abortion rights side.
1: That's right. It seemed to me like they had some real concerns about, you know, whether or not this really provides an avenue for people to get a pre-enforcement challenge in federal court. Uh, But saying that only the licensing officials can be sued really kind of narrows and kind of trims what relief, as we talked about, the abortion providers can get.
0: So it's another instance, I think, of Kavanaugh. We've seen him being possibly the least able to rely upon in terms of his argument questioning in terms of where he's headed and playing devil's advocate so maybe that's going to be true for Barrett too we're learning.
1: Yeah I mean I do think that Kavanaugh and Barrett actually kind of watching them and their oral argument styles are pretty similar. Uh, I think they both take a really long kind of wind up to explain why it is that they're asking the question that they're asking Um, and then it seems like based on these arguments in particular that you know a lot of times it may just be more academic uh, of a question than something that's really going to sway them.
0: All right, so Texas won this round again.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know if we can say Texas won this round. Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. No.
0: How can you say that they have well, it?
1: Well, the law can still. There's a. There's still a lot of question marks. So this isn't over for them. Um, I think in the end, though, you're probably right, Jordan. I think Texas is going to be seen as the victor when everything's all said and done
0: so texas won i'm right what else is left to talk about
1: uh mississippi maybe should we talk about mississippi and bring on our guest Ilya shapiro is vice president of the cato institute and director of its center for constitutional studies he's a frequent uh player in the supreme court how many how many briefs have you filed there? Have you kept track?
2: Um, I have signed more than 400. I have a good team, so I don't claim to be the primary author of all of them. But but yeah, we file about uh, probably about 50 briefs a year in the Supreme Court, roughly 35 at search stage 15 on the merits. That, that's about our wow. annual pace.
1: Well, um, one of those cases is the Mississippi abortion law. Can you tell us a little bit first off what the law is and kind of what the dispute is about?
2: That's actually not one of the cases in which we filed. Cato That's has right. never I knew filed. That. Cato well, has I never filed that. on an abortion case. Um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, this involves a Mississippi law that uh, prohibits abortions past 15 weeks, with certain exceptions uh, for the life of the mother and, and certain other narrow things. Uh, it's a square challenge to. Uh, Roe versus Wade and, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, which the governing which sets out the governing uh, uh, standard uh, for protection of the constitutional right to abortion as uh, the point of, of viability, and we'll get into uh, whether indeed that is the point. Perhaps Chief Justice Roberts, among uh, others. Uh, might want to rewrite that,
1: right? So you mentioned Chief Justice Roberts, who famously tries to come to some kind of middle ground um, in you know big, important, consequential cases. Um, was anybody buying that for this for this Dobbs argument?
2: Well, to be clear, what he what he was suggesting was that viability was itself dicta—that is, just something that. Harry Blackmun came up with that was not binding or necessary to the decision in Roe versus Wade based on Blackmun's papers. I'm not sure that's right as a matter of historical record, uh, but he's basically saying if viability is is not Important? then what is important? He's suggesting it's just uh, an opportunity, a fair opportunity to get an abortion, and maybe Mississippi is providing that by allowing it for 15 weeks. It seems like that's what he's going for. The only possible justice who might glom onto that is Amy Coney Barrett. She is, uh, I think it's going to come down to her, whatever she wants to do with this case is what uh, the, the the decision is going to be.
1: Hmm. So tell us a little bit about um, what you heard from Justice Barrett. I think there was one interaction in particular that got a lot of attention where she talked about kind of balancing the harms. Well... Um,
2: her her first line of questioning, Justice Barrett's first line of questioning, was about the role of stare decisis. Uh, that is, sometimes uh, we might want to keep erroneous precedent because correcting it would uh, upset things, would would create more damage to society than 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 getting it right. Um, and so she's struggling, uh, as all the justices are, with what weight to put on Roe and Casey after all these years. Then she started talking about, as you said said the, the various burdens and specifically that there is now greater opportunity uh, for adoption to uh, give up uh, a baby even at a hospital or various kinds of facilities that states have enacted laws to uh, facilitate um uh, uh mothers in, in tough circumstances to be able to give up their babies so perhaps the burden of parenthood isn't as great and so it's just uh the extra weeks of of pregnancy that we're talking about um, I don't know uh, where she would be uh whether closer to John Roberts as we just discussed or to her fellow trump uh, nominee Brett Kavanaugh uh, who has been in the middle of the court since he joined it uh, he was uh, more in the majority than anyone else the last two years uh, and but he came out of the gate talking about About How maybe the court should be neutral, meaning get out of abortion regulation altogether, leave it completely up to the states, which means overturning Roe v. Wade, because that's what uh, overturning Roe would do. It would say there is no federal constitutional standard to adjudicate, and each state can can regulate for itself. So we'll see which one of those positions uh, Barrett is drawn to.
1: So we've talked about those three justices. Um, I mean, I think is it fair to say that of the other six, we we know that there are three to overturn Wade and or Roe versus Wade and three to keep it on the books? Do you think that's a fair statement?
2: I think that is a fair statement. I think, um, in general, when pundits have talked about the three-three-three court, it's a little too simplified. That is, that there's three on the left, three on the right, and three in the middle, or the center-right. Those being Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh. Um, in this circumstance. Uh, It's also too simplified because as it turns out, it looks like Kavanaugh is definitely uh, uh, with uh, the right. Um, So it just depends on the type of case. And of course, recall that the biggest disappointment for conservatives in the last few years has been Neil Gorsuch, one of the supposed safe conservatives in the Bostock case, applying anti-discrimination law uh, with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity a couple of years ago. So uh, in this case, yes, I, I do think it, it does come down. This is why I'm saying it's coming down to Barrett, uh, because Roberts is no longer the man in the middle. He is the sixth man, uh, and we'll see what he does with that. Uh, you, we saw uh, just today as we're recording with the Texas SB8 case that uh, he joined uh, with, the, uh, with the left of the court on a significant uh, a portion of that, that decision. But maybe, maybe here he would join with the right of the court to make it a 6-3. to three. We'll see.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, that S- SB8 case. We talked a little bit about it um, before you came on. Were there any clues that the justices gave in that case, which was a procedural challenge, that will signal what they'll do here in Dobbs? Um,
2: I don't think so, because again, if we're looking, if we're looking to bear it, and if. You know, if, she, if she's the key, she did not write separately. She just joined Neil Gorsuch's majority uh, uh, opinion um, on, on purely procedural grounds. Uh, and they said we're not reaching the merits at all. Um, and I, I do think, certainly in her mind, certainly, you know, also in Kavanaugh, and in, in most of the justice's mind, I think this was a, a different sort of case.
1: I got to say, at the beginning of when they started to take up the um, SP8 cases, I did not have Justice Gorsuch writing the majority opinion. Um, That was a bit surprising to me.
2: Well, it, it means that Thomas, who's the senior most justice in the majority for the relevant sections, would have assigned it to Gorsuch, which is interesting. Um, I guess it's because uh maybe Thomas wanted you know lost his own majority for, because uh, he you know he wrote separately to say nobody had standing to challenge any of this, perhaps he thought that assigning it to Gorsuch would uh, be more of a uh, uh, be seen as a compromise position.
1: I was going to um, kind of ask how this case re- relates to uh, a religion case that the justices also heard this sitting. So bear with me a little bit. Uh, this case, Carson versus Mencken, um, for our listeners, it involves a main law that from a very high level um, provides tuition assistance for some private schools but not for religious schools. There's a lot of nuance there that I'm not getting into. But this relates back to this um and what you said about Justice Kavanaugh saying, you know, if the Constitution is neutral, why shouldn't we return the issue of abortion to the states? And I'm wondering what's different with these religion cases that that shouldn't also be true, um, that, you know, I think when I read the Constitution, I didn't see anything in there about providing tuition assistance to religious schools. So why isn't this a a place where you know, it should be given to the states.
2: Well, I think, though, it depends how you define neutrality. With respect to abortion, it's when do rights attach to the new living being, you know, the, the fetus, the baby, you know, at conception, at uh, first trimester, second trimester, at birth, at the quickening, at the ensoulment. I mean, there's you know, there's a line drawing issue for theologians, philosophers, scientists, and everybody else, but it's, as far as the law is concerned, there, there's no way to decide that is what Kavanaugh uh, is saying. With respect to, to this um, uh, religious liberty school choice case, what it, what a neutral position uh, here uh, would be is that a state does not have to establish a program uh, where parents can take um, uh, certain funds and to to uh, whatever school. Um, But if they do, uh, then religious schools can't be treated differently than secular schools. At least that's where the court has been going in a series uh, of cases with respect not just to educational funding, but the Trinity Lutheran case about uh, resurfacing a playground and a church playground has to be treated the same as a different kind of playground, that, that sort of thing. So that's how I think the neutrality aspect plays into it. It just, you know... If a state creates a program, then what do you do and how do you consider religious versus secular institutions?
1: Great. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the the, the neutrality in abortion uh, really depends on kind of weighing the two interests, the right of the woman and the right of the fetus. And I thought that was something that the advocate, the Mississippi Solicitor General, really pressed on a lot, that abortion is just different because it involves, you know, the potential to terminate human life. And so wondering, is that how you see it as well? Or can we take kind of some of the broader things um, that the court and the justices said there and apply them to other areas of the law, like I was trying to do with religion or, but, you could think of anything on campaign finance or others.
2: This goes, I think, to the broader discussion that came up uh, at Oral Argument and uh, in in the punditry since about what uh, overturning Roe would mean for uh, other sensitive culture war cases, whether gay marriage with Obergefell, whether uh, the right to contraception in, in Griswold, uh, other sorts of cases. And I think what the Mississippi Solicitor General is saying is that with abortion at a certain point, there is... Is another life and being uh, that has rights, and with these other things, it's all consenting adults, um, and so without answering the question of when exactly rights uh, life begins or rights attach for purposes of the Constitution, uh, I think that is a, a valid distinction. If it's if it's consenting adults all the way around, that is a different sort of question than when this you know other new being can impose
0: burdens or has its own rights that need to be balanced, Ilya when kimberly and i were talking about the sba case and the potential for copycat laws in different areas of the law i was wondering you know given how the court has been with religion for example of we've been, as we've been discussing or guns or whatever type of issue has clearly has at least a majority of the court on its side Do you really think that there is a possibility that a SB-8 type law that infringed the rights of, say, religion or guns or anything like that would not have met a different fate at the court in the type of decision we had today in SB-8? Well, the funny thing with this
2: Texas law, with everything that's happened, the litigation uh, through it, is that there was not... Um, a test case lined up right away you know a minute after it went into effect there wasn't a, a lawsuit in state court. Um, you know, filed uh, uh, by, you know, a, a friendly litigant funded by, you know, Planned Parenthood supporters or what have you uh, to instantly throw up Roe and Casey as a defense and get it uh, enjoined by a state court, as as has just happened, I think, a couple of days ago, um, which the court took notice of uh, in, uh, in, in Gorsuch's uh, majority opinion. Um, uh so and also the the challengers waited a while after Governor Abbott signed the law to file a lawsuit against it. They waited a while after that to file for a preliminary injunction so I think there's some gainsmanship that went on with this law that perhaps if a similar thing had happened uh, with respect to gun regulation or or something that you know was a more of a quote unquote conservative issue that there would have been a way to to stop it earlier so Um, I think it's unfortunate that it had to come to the Supreme Court having to rule on this procedural issue rather than a Texas court um, saying, obviously, until the Supreme Court overturns Roe, uh, this is, uh, you know, facially uh, unconstitutional or or can't be enforced even through this private enforcement mechanism devised by SB
0: 8. Uh, So, Eli, is there anything else about these cases that we should be thinking about? I think we've covered these cases nicely, but it's been such a big week because the other thing
2: that happened this week is that the Solicitor General, the U.S. government, filed its long-awaited brief in the Harvard Affirmative Action case, the, uh, the challenge to the use of racial preferences. And note that we're still in the second week of December, which means there's still plenty of time. Typically, the cutoff is about the middle of January for the court granting cases and putting them on the docket for the same term. So in this blockbuster year where we already have abortion, guns, and school choice, uh, we may well be adding affirmative action.
1: Yeah, I guess if I could just do a follow-up on that one. Um do you think that the Supreme Court will take up that case this term? I mean, I think most people think that they'll eventually take it. Or do you think, you know, there's another North Carolina case that's hanging out there, um, which involves a public school? Do you think they'll wait for that one? Um, or you think they'll just do it all in June?
0: Yeah,
2: the North Carolina case is basically equivalent to the Harvard one, uh, except that it's a public institution. In fact, I will be filing a brief next week, I think amicus briefs are due next the next Friday, uh, asking the court to add the North Carolina case just so so we have both a public and a private institution covered, given that all of the uh, racial preferences and education uh, precedents did involve public uh, institutions. And we, we want to have a, a clean uh, shot at whatever the court decides to do with the issue. So will it make it onto the docket this term? You know, in theory, you know, they can do whatever they want. Um, and the, the Dobbs itself was relisted something like, what, eight or 10 times before they granted it, so they could continue relisting this case past the, the sort of traditional mid-January uh, uh, soft deadline for putting it uh, on the docket for this term. Uh, if it's uh, John Roberts uh, making the determination, and again, he's, he's the sixth man, again, you need four to grant, right, and he's not even the, the, the five anymore, the fifth anymore. Um, you know, would he, if you're making a purely political, you know, perception thing, do you want another blockbuster issue in June ahead of the midterms? Would you rather have oral argument in October right ahead of the midterms? I don't know. I think they should, if they're going to take this this issue, uh, you know, I think they should they should take it sooner rather than later. Then again, if they're going by Justice O'Connor's 25-year shot clock from the, uh, the Grutter Gratz, Michigan cases in 2003, well, maybe they wait and, you know, get you know, within spitting distance of that if they decided in uh, June 2023.
1: Well, something to look forward to in June 2023. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Take care.
1: All right. Well, there you have it. That's Dobbs and Mencken and a little bit of Texas SB8. I feel like our work is done for today. Um, until our next episode, you can follow along with all of the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com
2: you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.